Revealing Voices is a mental health podcast that is faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. Host Tony Roberts and guest hosts with lived experience take you on a journey of revealing voices, working for justice, crying out for healing, speaking the truth in love, and expressing beauty in art. I'm Kevin Early Bird Early, technical producer and sound mixer, and I want to welcome you to Revealing Voices. Tony Roberts here, Chief Shepherd of Delight and Disorder Ministries. I'm shepherding a project through my blog at delightanddisorder.org. I have high hope it will culminate in a book with photos and letters entitled Hope for Troubled Minds, an anthology of letters between those with brain illnesses and our loved ones. Submit your letter written to your loved ones, first and second person grammar. Target date, March 1st, 2023. Send to me at tony at Indicate if you would be willing to read your letter for the audible version. I would appreciate your contributions of letters, your ongoing support, encouraging words, and your prayers. That's Tony Roberts, Tony at delightindisorder.org. Hello, this is Tony Roberts, and I'm here with my guest co-host for season six, Dr. Leonis Satterberg. And she will be joining me for four episodes this season. And we have as our first guest in a series of podcasts that will be on faith, mental health, and the church, Dr. Matthew Stanford. Dr. Stanford will explore a number of topics related to faith and mental health, mental health in the church, and serious mental illness in particular. He has a new book out called Madness and Grace, a practical guide for pastoral care and serious mental illness. And I know, Dr. Sanford, before we begin, I want to say as as a pastor, formerly uh, providing pastoral care in in the church, who also was stricken with serious mental illness, I can't say enough about how uh, you've opened doors that were not open in 1995 when it it hit me. So I'm grateful for that. So welcome. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you with us today, Dr. Stanford. And in particular, I did my doctoral thesis on mental health in the church. And so a lot of your writings and research had formulated and helped me really get a a better handle on mental health in the church. And so I'm particularly excited about having this conversation today. So one of the programs that I am familiar with is the mental health coaching program that was developed by the Hope and Healing Center and Institute. And are there collaborative efforts to expand that? Tell us a little bit about the program and what the results have been. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Here at the Hope and Healing Center, we had developed a mental health coaching program that was done in person. So you would come to the Hope and Healing Center for a week, uh, spend eight hours a day here, and our staff would, uh, all of our staff would do uh, different uh, aspects of that training. So it was about 40 hours of training. It was kind of based around the certified peer specialist training that exists in a lot of states with the thought of trying to develop kind of a 
a lower level type of provider, someone who could provide a layman or a peer that could provide some level of evidence-based care. Uh, so we were doing that for a couple of years here in Houston. And then I, I'm very involved with the American Association of Christian Counselors. So I spoke with Tim Clinton, the president, about uh, moving that online and using some of the AACC resources to do that. And so we did that and kind of serendipitously launched that really right when the pandemic started. And so that's really taken off. It's a 42-hour training that's available on demand through the uh, Light University a website, uh, or you can access it through our Mental Health Gateway website. And uh, we have about 30,000 people going through that now globally, most of those in the United States, but it's very exciting. I, I think it has a real potential to change the way faith communities engage uh, individuals with mental health problems. And there are some big plans on the horizon. We are uh, working on a Spanish translation of that. So hopefully that will be offered uh, late this year, a, a Spanish translation translation of the version that is on there right now. We've actually started doing it in Spanish here in person in the Houston area, but hopefully we'll have an online version of that by the end of the year. And also are in development, a mental health coaching program that's specifically on child and adolescent mental health issues so that people can work with parents or in settings where there are youth and or children and, and get them to the care that they might need when they're struggling. So those are the things that we're we're working on it right now. It's very exciting. I think it's a real opportunity to place highly skilled individuals in faith communities to help serve as that front door. As a follow-up, would you explain why is that so important, getting the church involved with mental health? I mean, you and I have some opinions about it, but tell us about, you know, how this came to be. Yeah, you know, in the, in the United States, majority of people with mental health problems never receive any treatment, which is a pretty disturbing statistic. And for those who do receive treatment, the average period of time that will pass from first symptom onset, which is usually sometime between 14 and 24 years old, to first treatment is 11 years. And so, you know, the people suffer for quite a long time. Many suffer their whole lives and never receive any treatment. But what we do know is that people are more likely to go to a clergy, you know, engage ministry staff before they go to a mental health care provider or a physician. And that's anyone in the general population, not just people that are associated with faith communities, but anyone in the general population, even those who don't believe in God are more likely to go to, to uh, clergy to try to get assistance. But the, the problem is, is that only a small percentage of clergy ever make a referral. They usually don't recognize what's in front of them because people don't walk in and say, I have a mental health problem. They just walk in with some set of problems. Uh, and then also most clergy don't have connections to mental health providers. And so I think the mental health coach adds a kind of a layer where a pastor can still just be a pastor, but you can have kind of a specialized trained individual right there at your faith community that can provide some level of supportive service, uh, kind of oversees some mental health related ministries and allows the pastor to just be the pastor. They don't have to try to worry about trying to get people referred or do the follow-ups. They can just be the pastor or minister and that mental health coach can serve that role. Are there any future plans? You mentioned several collaborative efforts with various groups. Is there any to bring along NAMI FaithNet to improve the local networks and support churches as a resource? Yeah, you know, we do quite a bit with NAMI here in Houston. We actually have the NAMI groups here at the Hope of Healing Center and do a lot of collaborative programs with them. And, and we've done a number of things with NAMI in San Antonio. So I'm very familiar with 
with NAMI and with FaithNet. I've, I've written some articles for the FaithNet website in the past. So absolutely that, you know, when we go into a, a town, that's one of the first connection points. And I do think that as we try to grow the, the mental health coaching program, I do think organizations like NAMI FaithNet are going to become very important to kind of help us kind of push that out across the country and, and kind of give it a solid connection in, in various communities. That's so exciting. Tell us more about your book, Madness and Grace. I mean, it is an, obviously an incredible resource for faith leaders. What has been the response from, from the pastors? Um, it's been a good response so far. Um, you know, this book was different than the others that I've written. Most of the others are more kind of informational. Uh, you know, each chapter would be about a different mental illness and talk about it from a from a science, scientific, or and then also a biblical perspective. But this was Templeton Press, who was the publisher. They asked me to write a book that was very practical, that was kind of like a guidebook or a handbook for um, for pastors or lay counselors uh, or pastoral counselors to kind of help them walk them through. So really what we did was try to kind of put a lot of the training that we offer in the faith communities kind of into a into a manual format. So, you know, you find in there chapters on, you know, how to assess an individual for to see if they have a mental health problem. So it literally will tell you which questions to ask and give you examples of that or it'll tell you about how to access different types of mental health resources in a community or how to do a suicide assessment. But it try, we tried to be very practical and give people kind of step by step. There's also a, a chapter that highlights successful mental health ministries around the country to just give people an idea, kind of a snapshot of what these different programs look like. They all can look very, very different and churches of very different sizes, but all having a, a tremendous impact on the lives of individuals struggling with mental health problems. But all through the church and all, you know, in an opportunity, it, taking the opportunity to kind of extend the kingdom and present Christ to individuals that are suffering. You reference in your book four R's, recognition, referral, relationship, and restoration. It's my experience, and Leon has expressed this and discussed this as well, that pastors can have some real challenges with the referral component. Is that a national concern? How are others addressing it? Yeah, and, and I agree. I think that, you know, when I really first started doing this, uh, really at this point, it's probably been a couple of decades now, with the thought of training in faith communities and training clergy and ministry staff, uh, a thought was that, you know, we could, we could probably train the ministry staff to kind of put together a referral list. You know, they would vet providers, put together a referral list and and then they would maintain that. And so people would get a, you know, a vetted kind of warm handoff to providers in the community that the faith, that the clergy and the ministry staff are working with. Well, we found that just doesn't work very well. I mean, number one, the mental health care system is dysfunctional at best, I think would be, you know, a good description of it. You know, it's extremely complicated. If you're not somebody working in the mental health care system, you don't understand the difference between all these various mental health care providers. And then you add on top of that layers of, you know, how they receive their pay versus insurance versus this versus that. There's this direct pay movement in mental health now where most people, a lot of providers aren't even taking in insurance anymore. So it's a, you know, it's 
you ultimately a lot of times have to go to multiple providers to get the, all the services. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, for, for clergy and ministry staff and churches in general to be able to maintain that list. So what we've done in the Houston area is we actually have a vetted network of over a thousand providers that we uh, maintain in a database, continue to add to. And our networks here in the Houston area have access to that through the Hope of Healing Center or through an app that we have that the mental health coaches can use. And so, so that's something that, you know, we've, we've been kind of piloting here in the Houston area. And now I do know that AACC is trying to develop a kind of a, what I think they call light counseling, which is a, will, will be some type of a, a national network of providers. And, and we've talked about that some as well. And I think that's going to be an important piece to help the mental health coaches and the churches that, that do decide to do these types of training and set these ministries in motion so that they will have, you know, they'll have vetted providers. Uh, right now, what we do is we recommend that a church just have, you know, maybe a one or two go-to counselors, one or two go-to psychiatrists, one or two uh, go-to, you know, kind of treatment facilities, as opposed to trying to have a, a large kind of exhaustive list and, and then, you know, again, I think this is also a place where organizations like NAMI, uh, Mental Health America, a lot of these organizations in the communities they're in will already have uh, some opportunities. So, for instance, at the Hope of Healing Center, if someone calls us from out of town and they're looking for services in a particular community, you know, we're not in that community, so it's hard for us to know. But a lot of times what we'll do is we'll connect them to the local NAMI or, or Mental Health America or 211 or, or whoever. So we basically have kind of a, st a starting list. And I think trying to bring those organizations along, like you, you said earlier, is a great way of collaborating and kind of helping with that referral piece. That's excellent. So in your book, you write in the introduction this amazing story, and it starts out uh, one light in the dark history of madness has been the involvement of the church in the care of the broken. Long before there were effective treatments or an understanding of the role of the brain in mental illness, Christian communities stepped forward to care for the least of these. You say one of the best examples of this happened in the famous village of lunatics in a Belgian town. Tell us about this village and how it serves as an example of Christian community caring for the least of these and the connection with that and, and the mental health coaching programs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, prior to really, honestly, prior to about the 50s, faith communities were much more involved with mental health issues. Pastoral counseling was a, was a much, much larger aspect than it is now, dealing with a lot more problems than it deals with now. But really with the dawn of psychiatry, the church kind of just gave a lot of that up. I'm not exactly sure why that is. I mean, there's a lot of people who debate why that is, but Giel, Belgium is the town that, that you're talking about. And I write about that in Madison Grace. And it's a it's a well-known story. There's been books written about it. I mean, the it's part legend and part reality. The story starts in the, the seventh century with a young Irish princess named Dymphna, who would become Saint Dymphna. Uh, and so Dymphna was, was the daughter of a kind of a chieftain warlord in Ireland. And her mother and she had come to Christ through missionaries. And so she, they had a, they had a priest there with them, but their, the, her father had, was still a, followed the pagan rites. And so um, uh, her mother was very beautiful. 
queen, but she suddenly died and uh, her father went into a deep depression as a result of that. And the, the men of his court wanted to try to help him because he was struggling to rule because he was so depressed. So they thought, well, if we could find another queen, perhaps that will help him. And so uh, he said that he would be willing to take another queen as long as she was as beautiful as his original queen. Uh, and so they began to search Ireland and they were not able to find a woman as beautiful, although people had remarked that only Dymphna was as beautiful as her mother. And so as the, as the pagan king went deeper and deeper into this depressive madness, uh, he ultimately decided that he would marry Dymphna and that would take uh, his wife's place. And she was uh, much against that because she felt that was wrong as a Christian. And so she said, I'm not going to marry you. And he said, well, I'll force you to marry me. And so in the middle of the night, she and her priest and two loyal servants, they ran away and they left Ireland and went to the European mainland and they settled near Giel, Belgium which is an actual town, it's still there today. And so they settled near Giel, Belgium and the king, when he uh, woke up the next morning and found they were gone, he went into a rage and he began to send his men out to look for her. So about a year passed uh, before a small band of his men uh, came upon the town of Giel and they were paying in a, in a tavern their strange European, strange Irish coins. And one of the men there at the tavern said, oh, I've seen coins like that before. And that piqued their interest. And the soldier asked, well, where did you see a coin like this before? This group that lives outside the town, they pay with those types of coins. And that was Dymphna and her priest and servants. And so they were found and the king uh, traveled to Belgium to re retrieve her. She refused to come home. Uh, he said, you must come home. You must marry me. Uh, she said, I'm not. He says, I'm going to kill your priest in front of you unless you do. She says, I'm not. He killed the priest. He says, if you don't come with me, I'm going to kill you. She said, I won't come with you. It's wrong to marry you. And he killed her and left them there. And the people of the town buried them in a ca small cave near there. And that was kind of the end of it until the 13th century, when there was some excavation around the cave and Dymphna's uh, remains were accidentally dug up. And it's said that when her remains are dug up, several people in the town or in the area that had madness were healed miraculously. So, so if you imagine it's like, you know, the middle of the 1200s, uh, you're living in, uh, you know, Europe and you've got a mentally ill or a child with madness like psychosis or something like that there are no treatments and you hear about this incredible miracle that's happened well people start bringing their uh, loved ones from all over Europe to uh, Giel Belgium to try to see if they can be miraculously healed and so the the relics of Dymphna were placed in a small shrine there and people start bringing their loved ones and they're praying there and they start, you know, many of them were not healed miraculously. And so they would just leave them there. And uh, the priest of a, of a church there were trying to take care of them. They built a small hospital on the side of the church, but that was quickly overrun. And so what they did is they asked the people of the town to help them and to start taking these people in as borders. And that's what they did. So they started doing that at that time. And, and ultimately, a large church was built there, the Church of St. Dymphna. And, the, and so from the 13th century till today, 
the people of Giel, Belgium have taken in individuals who were in the mental, who were mentally ill into their homes and let them live their, their, the remainder of their lives out in their homes as boarders in their homes. Uh, today, that process is part of the modern mental health care system in uh, Belgium. So um, individuals that don't have a family they can live with or a place to live, the, the people of the town of Giel, Belgium are on a list and they are chosen and they're given a monthly stipend to help, you know, take care of those individuals and they live with them their entire lives. And there's been um, lots of books written and lots of documentaries made about, you know, people that have lived their whole lives with another family. Uh, and they basically just become an uncle or an aunt or a cousin of the family and they work on the family farm or in the family business and they're just part of the family. Uh, and it's a really, you know, but these people stepped forward because they were people of faith. Uh, they knew that these people needed to be cared for and, and it's continued on even till today. You know, when I wrote the book, I think there was right at 300 people that were still in this program where they're living with individuals. But uh, at, I think at the peak, there were, you know, tens of thousands of individuals living with other families taking care of them. So it's a exciting, you know, I think, you know, as I said in the book, I think if, you know, kind of medieval peasants uh, that know nothing about mental health issues can step forward and help out of their faith, I think we could do so much more today uh, as people with a little bit more understanding of what's going on uh, with these individuals. Uh, and I think that uh, faith is really kind of the foundation of that, all of that. Great story. I was impressed by that village of lunatics. So how have we as Christians lived up to this ideal and where have we fallen short? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's hit and miss, to tell you the truth. We, you know, there are faith communities that have really stepped up and, and they do a lot. But unfortunately, I think we've gotten, you know, as a church in the in the in America, church in the West, I think we've gotten very insular in in you know what it is. Churches that they're at the church and, and, you know, we just don't do a lot of outreach. We do outreach. It's just kind of evangelistic, but just to tell people the gospel. And that's just the whole sense of the ministry. We don't really kind of meet people where they are. Uh, and there's a lot of sp over-spiritualizing of mental health problems in the church where things like depression, anxiety are looked at as sin, uh, really naively looked at as sin, frankly, instead of just saying, I have a hurting person in front of me and I you know, God has called me to care for the hurting. You know, we like to judge and shame and uh, kind of ostracize. So, you know, I, I do see some of that changing. I've seen it change quite a bit over the last couple of decades. Although, you know, I, I and I think the pandemic actually kind of brought mental health issues home to everybody's front door. So I think churches have really had to step up. Uh, I know the churches that we deal with that do our training, I mean, they're just overwhelmed uh, with people with mental health problems and they just don't know what to do. And so we provide a platform where they can become equipped and have resources to, to more effectively minister to those individuals. And I just see it as a divine opportunity. I mean, if God's sending people to us and what other, what other condition are people, any person more likely to go to a you know, go to a clergy before they go to a physician or a, or a mental health care provider. I mean, it's a, you know, you know, if you have a heart disease, you're not more likely to go to a clergy. So it's a, it's a pretty uh, interesting phenomenon. And I think, you know, uh, God would expect us to be prepared to receive them. So I would say, you know, to answer your question, it's hit and miss. Uh, I think there's a lot of resources coming online now for churches. It's just whether churches will step up and recognize that they have a real opportunity here uh, which is also very evangelistic. If people come and they're 
they're broken and, and they want you to walk along with them through this problem, you have an incredible opportunity to share the Lord with them. So, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Thank so what can we do better as, as leaders and pastors and, and congregations? What can we do better? Well, you know, I think number one, I would say get educated. I mean, you know, it, it's not an issue. I mean, I tell pastors all the time, what I'm not doing is I'm not out there telling people, hey, I got a great new ministry idea. You know, why don't you set this ministry up and then all these people will come that have mental health problems. They're already coming and they've been coming for, you know, decades, 100 years or more. You know, we, we have data that shows that people are more likely to go to uh, clergy first. So, it, they, you know, it, regardless of how old your church is, I mean, that's how far behind you are uh, on probably effectively ministering to these individuals. So I would say get educated. You know, there, there's great training out there through, uh, you know, a lot of different organizations. We obviously offer training. Uh, AACC offers training. A lot of different organizations offer trainings. I think at a at the lowest level, what a, a faith community can do is just open its doors up and allow organizations like NAMI and things like DBSA, organizations like that, to just put a support group there and just offer that to the community. So I think, you know, begin to provide, you know, some supportive service as well as get educated and connect yourself to the mental health system in your local community. I mean, vet providers and, and you know, know what you're going to do when people show up because they are going to show up. They're already showing up. Uh, it's just an opportunity to minister them more effectively. I think beyond that, I mean, what I would say is, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a big advocate of churches trying to start counseling centers. I think that's a huge expense. And, you know, it, it's, there's plenty of counselors out there. It's, it's whether we offer these kind of lower supportive services for individuals when they first recognize they have a problem, but then also, you know, become a healing community. So for families and individuals, as they walk along uh, through this road to recovery, uh, I mean, what better place to be in a healing community than in a church that can offer you uh, a hope that transcends circumstances. And so, so I think that's the thing. I mean, be a, be a front door to the system, however that might be, but then also be a place where people can come and they can, they can, they can change, you know, they can be transformed over time spiritually, but they also can be part of a recovery process where they're accepted and supported uh, as they recover from their mental health issues. Thank you, Dr. Stanford. You know, for me, this has been a personal journey as well. I'm one of those statistics. My son was seven years old when he was psychiatrically hospitalized for the first time. And the first place I went was to the church where I was raised. And I right. said to them, what do I do? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> and it really started that fire in me about how to educate churches and pastors. And when I started doing my research for my dissertation, one of the things that really stood out to me is we all know that one in four individuals are affected by, by mental health and pastors are not exempt. What is available to pastors in for addressing their own mental health issues? Because this is something that stood out in the research to me. Yeah, it, you know, that's a tough one. You know, it's, it's tough for pastors because, you know, we hold pastors to really an impossible standard. You know, we expect them to 
be perfect in their behavior and thought process. We expect their families to be perfect. You know, I don't, I don't know that we overtly say it that way, but we certainly hold them to that standard. And they certainly think of it that way. So I've had pastors tell me that, you know, I've, you know, my daughter has an anxiety problem, but I've never told my elder board, you know, or I had a pastor tell me I go and I get, you know, I need counseling and I go and I take psychiatric medication, but I go to the town next to the town I live in so that nobody will know that. And so, you know, it, it, I think what we have to do is we have to recognize that pastors are people. And, uh, you know, what the data shows us is that, you know, one out of every five individuals struggles with a mental health problem in a given year. And Christians are no different than any other. And the little bit of data that we do have from pastors suggests that maybe they even struggle at a higher rate uh, than the general population. And I think that that is probably because they're in an extremely high stress uh, job and they have very little uh, resource. Some of the saddest data you'll ever look at is when they survey senior pastors and ask them if they have friends. You know, a, a vast majority of them will say they don't feel like they have any single person they can talk to. Uh, so that's, you know, it's pretty disturbing. So I think, you know, we need to be able to give our pastors the opportunity to be human and, and to struggle. Uh, I think when a pastor does struggle, instead of just thinking about discarding them, because maybe they're somehow spiritually, def- you know, have a deficit or something, I think we should give them the opportunity to recover and, you know, make sure that, you know, make at, at a minimum what a, what a, uh, faith community can do is they can make sure that the insurance policy that they provide uh, to their clergy and their ministry staff covers mental health services, because I think they'll be surprised how many don't, uh, that it does cover mental health services and that they should be free to access those services. And, you know, I think, you know, I found some of the churches that are the most engaged when it comes to mental health care are churches where pastors have had mental health issues in their own family or maybe in their own lives because they really understand, you know, what that means. So, you know, I think we just need to, we need to give grace to pastors, the same grace we would want them to give us when we're struggling with these mental health difficulties. You know, I'll tag on to that, that when I developed progressive serious mental illness as bipolar disorder, I, my church was, my denomination, my churches were, were very progressive on the one hand, and provided me quality health insurance that had mental health parity. On the other, when I you know, needed to go into mental health disability, uh, and I was feeling guilty about taking their money. And, and uh, one of my colleagues who was aware of what I had gone through in 18 years of ministry, he said, oh, that's just combat pay. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Our last last question, Dr. Stanford, is how do our podcast listeners get involved in promoting the mental health conversation in their faith community? And, you know, and I think that starts the same way as, you know, as it does for the church. I think they educate themselves. You know, if they, you know, everyone's affected by mental health problems in some way. I mean, you either have them in your family, you have them yourself or someone you know has, uh, and, you know, people you work with or go to school with, or certainly the people you go to church with. Uh, so, you know, I think educate yourself, you know, what's out there. Uh, you know, we offer a, a wide variety of, of trainings. You can go to mentalhealthgateway.org, 
We have all kinds of training, all types of resources there. You know, the vast majority of those are, are completely free. You know, and, and if you, you know, if you decide that this is something you want to do at your church, then there, you know, we have support staff that can help you get those in place. But there's lots of opportunities. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, if you want to talk to somebody local, contact your local NAMI. If you want to, you know, attend an AACC meeting, you know, or, or look at some of the AACC training, American Association of Christian Counselors. And there's a lot of opportunities. But also think about and ask, you know, if you're, if you're not a clergy or if you're just a member of the church, talk to the clergy, talk to the ministry staff about what are the needs of your church. I mean, do your, does your church have a lot of people that have addictions? Does your church have a lot of people that struggle with homelessness? Is your tr- church seeing a rise in depression? Uh, because that's the best place to start is wherever the, whatever the greatest need is at your church, because that's where you're going to have the most traction. And, you know, and then, you know, look for supportive opportunities for those individuals, maybe start a support group, you know, maybe help put together referral lists, maybe vet providers and have their materials. I mean, small things can make a huge difference. To tell you the truth, I've had people tell me how it was transformative for them to hear their church openly pray for people with mental health problems in the service, you know, by just saying, saying depression out loud or schizophrenia out loud, because they'd simply never heard it in a church service before. So you don't have to do everything at one time, uh, but just do something. Because even at this very moment at your faith community, people are showing up and they may or may not realize they have a mental health care problem, but they've come there to try to get things on track. You know, it's likely if your faith community is like the average faith community, it's not prepared to receive them. Before you check out, we've mentioned your book, Madness and Grace. We've mentioned Hope and Healing Center, Light Light University. Is it light or life? Light, L-I-G-H-T. L-I-G-H-T. And you have a, a new podcast coming out. You want to just feature that a little bit? Yeah, we, we're just starting a podcast. It'll start up in February. It's called Madness and Grace. And it's a Basically, it's a conversation on uh, mental health and faith. You know, we're going to uh, have episodes where we have guests, much like you've had me on, on this podcast. And we're also going to have episodes where we just discuss particular topics, myself and my co-host. And we're also going to be taking questions from people that listen. So we, we have a, a, an email for them to send in questions, and we'll just be answering questions related to mental health and faith. And so we're excited about that. You know, I think the more... The more of, of these kind of conversations that we have out here, like you guys are providing, I think that's where people, you know, that's where I learn when I'm listening to other people have these conversations or I have an opportunity to ask questions or hear questions asked. So the more of this, the more of these we can have, uh, the more movement you'll see in the church. Amen to that. Well, thanks for coming on with us. Yeah, happy to do it. Wish you guys well and, uh, you know. Let's go on. And this is your, you said this is your sixth or seventh season. We're entering our sixth season. Oh, that's fantastic. So, Congratulations. And, and here's thank you. Six more. Yes. And may you also have many successful seasons and whatever the Lord leads you to other ministry opportunities. Appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Revealing Voices is an outreach of Delight and Disorder Ministries whose mission is to inspire and inform those with brain illnesses and our loved ones. In the process, we hope to encourage and uplift you with hope that can be healing. If you think we are accomplishing our goal, 
We would be delighted if you gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to recommend guests or topics for future shows, contact us at our website, revealingvoices.com. Be blessed and be well.